1: Uh, back below 1.5% at 1.48%. That spike in yields yesterday really spooked markets and I think got some people to kind of think about valuations here, uh, think about asset allocation here. Let's get the lay of the land with Jim Bianco. He's a president and founder of Bianco Research. He's also a contributor to Bloomberg Opinion based in Chicago. Jim, thanks so much for joining us here. What do you make of the action over the past couple of days? Again, having yields shoot up here and we saw a lot of commodities flash, maybe some inflations, uh, inflation signs. What do you make about what's going on?
0: I think what you just said is right, is inflation signs. I've been trying to say that there is two different words that we need to keep our mind on, and that is reflation, which you hear a lot of, and inflation. And people use those words interchangeably, but they shouldn't because they're two different concepts. If interest rates are rising because of reflation, that is real growth is coming back, earnings are coming back, people are getting jobs, then Chairman Powell is right. It reflects, higher rates reflect a confidence in the economy. But if we're crossing over to that it is inflation, and that is your loss of purchasing power, your dollar in a year will buy you less than a dollar now if you own a fixed income security by the name fixed income, you don't get any more dollars in a year, you get the same number, but it buys less, you don't want to touch those securities. And that's why rates could be going up, and it would be very bad for the stock market. So I think we're caught in this push-pull as to, yes, we know the economy's going to come back strong this year. That's not the issue. The issue is how much of that's going to be inflation, how much of that's going to be real growth. And with the surge in commodities, as you've mentioned, in other measures, people are getting more and more worried that we're going to see something we haven't seen in 25 years, and that is an actual inflation boom.
2: Jim, I've been thinking about you all morning, and not just as we exchanged messages earlier today, but I've been thinking about your read on what we've seen in the bond market. You know, there's a question about whether it's just thin trading or whether it's potentially leveraged positions that are getting unwound, you know, convexity hedging, you name it, technical factor, or whether this is actually a belief in inflation that perhaps isn't being reflected in a tips market, in a a securities market that is distorted uh, by thin liquidity and a whole host of other issues. Can you just what 's going on <laughs> yeah
0: so so two things um, there is the treasury uh, real rates market or tip securities treasury inflation Protected securities, and we look at the difference between those securities and nominal rates to get what 's called the inflation break even rate as an indicator of the future of inflation. The biggest buyer in that market is the Fed. They have bought more bonds in the last year, tips bonds, than have been issued, and the amount outstanding for the public is actually declining. That's how many they've bought. So my point there is they've got a giant footprint all over that market, and I've been doubting the measures that we've been getting out of that market. So, that is an inflation indicator that people said, look, there's no problem there. But yeah, but it could also be because the Fed's stomping all over it. But to your other point about what's going on in the bond market, if you're not a bond geek like I am, and I'm going to put you in the bond yes, geek Yes, <laughs> Paul's going
3: to yeah, say that yeah, for me. Yeah,
0: it, and you look at yields and you go, well, they're on their way to one and a half, and some people say they might be at two by the end of the year. I'm an equity investor. I own a business. Who cares? It's 2%. It's not a big deal. Or if it goes to two and a half, it's not a big deal. You know, if you're a bond investor, it matters a lot because you could wind up with with total return losses that could be very, very big. If you've owned thirty-year bonds this year you're down 20% on the year, on the 30-year bond, one of the worst first two months of a year in history. And if you're buying bonds on leverage, because you can do that through the repo market, you can leverage your positions all you want, you could have catastrophic losses if we have a 2% yield coming in the next few months. And if the bond market is in a bad place, all capital markets are in a bad place as well, too. So it's not a worry, I don't think, at this point, that you know, 2% on the 10-year Treasury is going to crush the economy with super high interest rates. What it is, 2% could create havoc in the credit markets, and that could hurt the economy. The ability to raise money yeah. or to do the things that you're, you're comfortable with doing, that could come into question. We're not there now we got to stop doing this so we don't go there.
2: All right. I'm going to annoy Paul and ask a question (laughs) that's in the weeds. But you mentioned this TIPS market. You mentioned this sort of inflation expectations market. And this is really key because a lot of people keep pointing to it to show that actually inflation expectations are going down over the long term, even as Treasury yields go up. This doesn't make sense uh, in a lot of ways. Are you saying that inflation expectations, as measured by the market, are highly inaccurate based on the distortions, based on the amount of that market that's been dominated, that's been hoovered up by the Federal Reserve.
0: Yes, and I'll even back up one step further. Inflation expectations is a predictor of where inflation is going to go. We've had these markets for 20 years, have not been very good at all. They've not been a very good indicator of what actually happens in the beginning. Now you throw in the fact that the largest single buyer is the Federal Reserve in these markets. And you've seen real interest rates falling all year long. If the economy is going to boom at 5 6 or 7%, which would be, if you believe Goldman's forecast is 7% real, that would be the fastest yearly growth in 40 years. If we had that happen this year, real rates should be rising in that kind of environment. But they're falling, or at least the tips market has been falling. Why? Because the Fed is relentlessly buying these every day. In fact, they publish every day how much they buy, and it's in the several billions every single day that they buy of this market. So. I'll quote the British economist Charles Goodhart. He's a good friend to John Farrow's. When a measure, <laughs> when a measure becomes a target, it seeks being a measure. We're looking that. at, yes, we're looking at tips as a measure of where the market thinks inflation is. But if the Fed is targeting it by all of their buying, it's no longer a measure. So that's what my, I've been saying. I think conceptually it's right. You know, for the last few months, tips break-evens have been going up. But when you want to get into the weeds and say, well, they peaked three weeks ago and this and that, be careful now because you got that big footprint of the Fed stomping all over that market, and it might be giving signals that aren't the measure that you think they are.
2: Jim Bianco. Thank you so much for being with us. Jim Bianco uh, of Bianco Research. It's always wonderful having you on. Honestly, uh, I was actually really looking forward to hearing what he had to say because he always has such nuanced views pairing both the technical, Paul, uh, with the fundamental and really that tips market concept. I know it's in the weeds, but it's really important.
1: It is, and and we hear a lot of strategists and a lot of fund managers talk about that tip-tips market, and, uh, you know, it's interesting, that you know, kind of bringing in also the Fed buying and how that's impacting uh, the market and rates across uh, the rate curve.
4: Yeah, honestly, fascinating discussion.
2: Now we want to turn our attention to the medical advances that we have seen, which have been turbocharged by the pandemic. And Paul, I do think that one emerging aspect of the pandemic is all the money and all the attention on the need for biopharmaceutical uh, investment as well as research. And joining us now is someone very much in the forefront of that, Dr. Steve Cutler, Chief Executive Officer of ICON PLC, uh, based in Dublin. Just to give you a sense, ICON uh, had a tie-up with PRA Health Sciences. It was the largest healthcare transaction deal this year, $12 billion. And both companies uh, help basically run the clinical trials for drug makers and medical device developers. And they've been on the front lines of some of these medical advancements. Dr. Cutler, thank you so much for being with us. Can you give us a sense of just how much the uh, pandemic has turbocharged what really uh, has been in the works for a while, which is investment in biopharmaceutical development?
5: Yeah good morning uh, Paul good morning Lisa uh, the, the pandemic certainly has been a, obviously a tragic event uh, you know across our society but there have been some silver linings at least for us in our business and the way in which we've run clinical trials now has has fundamentally changed in terms of approval times in terms of the types of technology we're able to apply to running clinical trials and, and quite frankly in terms of the awareness of society of, of clinical trials and the benefits of clinical trials, we think that all plays into a very positive environment for our organization going forward and hence one of the reasons that we've, uh, we've, we've made this union with, uh, with PRA.
1: Okay, doctor, this is a big deal for you guys. PRA is a big company uh, as well. <clears throat> Talk to us about the, the real drivers, the strategic drivers be- behind putting these two companies together here.
5: Yeah, there's a couple of them. Certainly, we've, seen, I mean, we've been competing with PRA for a, for a number of years now, 20, 30 years since we've been in existence, and they've been a very strong competitor there and a very, uh, a very good competitor over that time and, and, and a very strong cultural fit. So, so when you bring two large people-related businesses together, the culture, the focus, the core values of the organisations are very important. We see a lot of similarities there. We've made an assessment really over the last few years in terms of our other uh, competitors, and the fit we had with PRA really, really, really brought them to the fore. In terms of the benefits and the advantages, there's really a couple of them for us as a large organisation. We move from being, we were six, they were seven, or vice versa, in terms of our league table in revenues in the organiser. We now move as a combined organisation to number two in the industry. So we are, and we're number one in a number of the segments. So we are, we have the scale now. To really deliver innovative solutions and creative solutions for for our customers across the globe we have the depth and the breadth of resources and that's very important in the clinical trials game because we run trials all over the world in all sorts of different therapeutic areas the other component is the technology side of things as I said through the pandemic we've realized that applying the new technologies the the ability to access patient data remotely and to monitor patient data remotely in a confidential and private manner allows us to be much more efficient and as we as we run those sort of trials and we run what we call more decentralized clinical trials where patients don't have to go to sites we can we can monitor patients at home we have those sort of services PRA bring a mobile health platform to that we can offer a really compelling vision in that space for for our customers so we can be much more efficient i believe going forward and then finally uh, for our shareholders there's significant value in this uh, in this union and uh, you know from an accretion point of view from a long term revenue and a sustainable growth perspective
2: Dr Cutler it's been a real rotten uh, 12 months for a lot of people around the world and i'm trying to find, silver linings every day for my children. And, and one of them that I try to lean upon is that perhaps we'll get biopharmaceutical research that'll cure the cold or cure cancer, or cure all sorts of uh, ailments that we have with us today. Do you see those kinds of seismic uh, advancements that are made because of the money put behind uh, biopharmaceutical research as a result of the pandemic?
5: So I'm not sure we're going to cure cancer because of the pandemic. I think-
3: <laughs> I'm trying.
5: I, I, I know. I think we're all very focused on that. That's a very big part of our portfolio. But what we, what we have seen is a real focus on clinical trials and the ability to get clinical trials moving much faster in a much less bureaucratic fashion than we've seen in the past. So what I'm seeing is it would be much more efficient going forward in the way we run clinical trials, whether they be decentralised or the more traditional. And so what, what we see is our sponsors will have more opportunity to put more drugs through the pipeline, so to speak, to have more shots on goal, to get pharmaceuticals and get good drugs to market whether they be cancer drugs whether they be pandemic or vaccines whether they be other other drugs that's what we see and the, the pandemic has really caused us to rethink the way we do things and know that we can do things in very different ways we were involved in the large Pfizer Uh, BioNTech trial. That was one of our big big studies. We were able to get that done so much faster than we normally do with these clinical trials. And so that that really lays the groundwork, I think, for a a very strong future in our business.
1: Dr. Steve Cutler, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate that, Dr. Stephen Cutler. He's the Chief Executive Officer of Icon PLC. They are based in Dublin. Just announced this week uh, a big deal, the biggest uh, healthcare transaction so far this year. Uh, Icon uh, acquiring PRA Health Sciences. That's a company based in Raleigh, North yeah. Carolina. Total transaction value of twelve billion dollars. Huh. Um, and you know, Lisa, as, as Dr. Uh, Cutler mentioned. It was really great to see how some of these how quickly these tests and these trials were done
2: i gotta say can you tell where my mind's at i'm basically yeah. when is it done what is it yeah. over can we end the pandemic i mean how many times can i answer that question for my kids before i start passing it on to every guest that comes on especially exactly. people on the front lines to know the answer
1: that's where we all are and uh, the good news lisa is uh the metrics are really trending uh in the right direction so that is certainly good news after a very difficult year Yes, it is that time of year again where we hear from Warren Buffett and his faithful parse every single word he has to say. Uh, Kat Chiglinski follows Warren Buffett, follows the finance industry, follows the insurance industry, is really the ace on this. She's from Bloomberg News. Kat, we haven't really heard that much from Mr. Buffett over the last year with all that's been going on. What do you expect to see and hear and read when we do get his letter?
3: Well, I think it means it's going to pack more of a punch because, you know, yeah, we heard from him last May at his annual meeting. But during that meeting, he sort of expressed caution about the whole situation, about the pandemic, and especially about the economic outcomes from it. So I think shareholders are really looking to this letter to sort of provide some clarity because, you know, the letter does describe how Berkshire did over the past year. But people really turn to Buffett, too, as kind of a business leader and, you know, a successful investor, and they want to know – His thoughts on lots of issues, including the presidential election in which he was really actually quite silent about and the race protests that swept the nation last year. And even more investing type issues like the Reddit mania, Mm -hmm. you know, depending on when he put pen to paper uh, and actually wrote this letter. I think people will be interested to hear if um, if he has thoughts on kind of where all that stock market speculation stands.
2: Well, this 90-year-old chief executive officer, the Oracle of Omaha, is one of the most (laughs) famed investors ever to hit Wall Street. And yet I do wonder, especially as he takes less of a role at the company, how much import his views have at this point, given the other companies that have sort of filled the void and entered uh, the the front running seat in terms of influence. I mean, has this letter waned with respect to how it's perceived on Wall Street?
3: Well, so I, I, you know, I asked that question to these investors who follow him religiously, like, why do you keep reading it? Because obviously, you know, you can look back at his letters at the dot-com bubble, and that sort of gives you a sense of what he might think about with, you know, the current stock market um, situation we're seeing. But I do think that investors still look to him because he does have this historical perspective. And if you've ever watched him speak at these events, I mean, you can tell he really has an incredible memory an incredible recall of everything he's read and seen and done. And I think that does lend his word still some weight. You know, he can really, he can take all that, you know, we've had to kind of ingest over the past year in terms of the news and what's happening. And, and he can sort of step back and say, you know, compared to his, you know, 90 years of history of being on this planet, here's kind of, you know, his take on it.
1: So, all right, cat, one of the things that people really over the last several years have really focused on is what to do with all that cash. I'm looking at the FA function on the Bloomberg terminal for Berkshire Hathaway and you know, 400 over 400 billion dollars in cash on the balance sheet. Yes, there is a little bit of debt, but super super cash rich here. What's the expectation here? Can he put that money to work?
3: Yeah, so he actually has closer to $145 billion of cash to work, which is actually uh, close to a record for Berkshire. And it is hard. I mean, you know, he, he needs to find bigger deals, bigger stock purchases that actually move the needle and kind of generate even higher returns for the conglomerate. And when you're, you know, fighting off private equity firms who are bidding for the same companies you are, and now the kind of SPAC boom, I think it's made it a lot more challenging for Berkshire to say, you know, here, here we are as a clear you know, buyer of these companies. And so I think that's why we've seen trends like he was a massive repurchaser of stock at least through the first nine months of 2020. It's one of the, his biggest years ever for repurchasing stock, which for most companies is so routine. But for Buffett, I think it really underscores this point that he's, he is willing to expand his horizons if he needs to, to find ways to deploy that cash. But obviously, he would love that elephant size deal to come around.
2: One thing I'm curious to hear is he's been really adamant about American exceptionalism and the growth of the economy, talking about how lucky it is to be born in America and the growth of the nation uh, continuing. And he sort of has had complete faith in that for a long time he's been right to a large degree and yet as he tries to diversify his investments I'm curious to know whether he will change his tune at all when we see some of the dynamism coming out of other places in the world what's your sense of that based on the rhetoric out of uh, Warren Buffett's uh, shop out of his colleagues uh, just generally out of Berkshire Hathaway
3: I do agree. Like, he's always been very optimistic about America. And I think that will continue. I think we'll probably still hear from him about, you know, the positive attributes he thinks of this country and our systems and how they work. Obviously, it'll probably be tempered with, you know, how do you view that in terms of the riots we saw at the Capitol and some of the other stresses we've had in this uh, democracy over the past year. But I do think he is more willing to venture abroad. And we saw that last year where he piled six, billion dollars into Japanese trading house stocks. And I think this shows not only the influence of his deputies, I think they do have an influence on him kind of expanding his horizons. But I think it shows that if Berkshire is really going to be able to deploy its funds successfully and generate these higher returns, they're going to have to start looking abroad. They're going to have to figure out different economies and these different types of companies like these trading companies in Japan. And figure out which ones are actually going to fit because Berkshire just is fishing in too small of a pond right now.
1: Hey, Kat, thanks very much. We really appreciate it. Kat Chiglinski, finance reporter for Bloomberg News, giving us the latest on Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett. Again, it's that time of the year where we will hear from the Oracle of Omaha with his annual investment letters. Kat was mentioning lots to parse through there.
2: Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor Data Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at bloomberglive.com slash investor slash radio.
1: All right, let's turn our attention to fiscal stimulus. Looks like the House is scheduled to take up the stimulus bill on the floor of the chamber today uh, with passage expected late in the evening or potentially Saturday. Let's get the latest on what may or may not be, included in that bill. We do that with Eric uh, Wasson, Bloomberg Congressional Reporter. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Talk to us about what are the notable inclusions and maybe exclusions from this $1.9 trillion fiscal stimulus bill.
6: Well, you know, the big debate here in the last 24 hours has been about the minimum wage provision. That was the sort of the lightning rod provision in the Senate. And a Senate official, an obscure Senate official, a Senate parliamentarian, ruled that they cannot do it through this budget bill. Uh, so that's leading to a lot of conflict here. Uh, House progressives are really urging the vice president to possibly try to overrule that, something she can do, but the right the House is reluctant to do. Uh, the House will include that provision in the bill that they passed tonight, probably around 8 or 9 o'clock. However, in the Senate, there's now talk of doing a tax penalty to try to force large corporations to raise that wage. So there's a lot going on there. That's the main uh, thing that's up for change. But as far as the, the main uh, provision that people know about, the 14- $100 stimulus checks for those making less than $75,000 a year. That's pretty much locked in, as far as I can tell. Uh, that's in the House bill and likely to remain in the Senate bill. We're also looking at extension of unemployment benefits and a child uh, tax credit expansion temporarily.
2: So can we get a sense of how committed Democrats are as a whole? And I realize it's not a cohesive group right now. How committed they are to uh, getting a minimum wage increase through, especially now that they would have to tie it to a tax increase or some other provision uh, that would be more directly tied to the deficit?
6: Well, you know, it's just it's just not really clear if they're going to all be on board. I mean, putting a tax increase, there is a very tiny international tax uh, loophole closer in the bill now, $22 billion, but making it a very large, uh, they're talking about a 5% payroll tax on companies. That's very easy for Republicans to uh, demonize and to portray as a tax increase in the middle of a pandemic. That caused some heartburn for moderate Democrats. So this hasn't really been shopped around, it's put forward by Bernie Sanders and Ron widened progressives on the left, and uh, Schumer is now weighing it. But, uh, you know, we don't really know yet if moderates are going to go for that.
1: Eric, Give us a sense of timing here. We're getting very close to, you know, the point in March where a lot of these benefits from the original or the last round of fiscal stimulus start to expire for a lot of people. So time is of the essence here. Yeah, that's right. The expanded
6: unemployment benefits uh, for gig workers, long-term unemployed, and those getting that $300 plus up from the federal government to their state benefits does expire, begin to expire on March 14th. Uh, you know, the Senate has this two more weeks to act. Uh, that's probably enough time to get it done, although to wrinkle with the minimum wage is going to cause a lot of uh, negotiating and t- conversations over the weekend early on. Uh, if they can resolve that, the Senate could easily uh, pass it on the floor within two weeks. as a special budget procedure, so the Republicans can't really drag it out.
2: Do we have a sense of how much momentum there would be after this bill gets passed? And the expectation is it will get passed by mid-March. How much momentum there is to get uh, working on that infrastructure bill to possibly get something passed uh, again later in the year?
6: Yeah, that's a story that Chris Condon and I probably did on the terminal last week. The infrastructure has a lot of momentum. Uh, you know, that could be a bipartisan bill, and in fact, they can't necessarily use this budget procedure for infrastructure for several reasons, including the fact that it's a long-term spending uh, uh, proposal that goes beyond 10 years and violates the Byrd rule in the Senate. Uh, but there's a lot of talk among progressives of adding a grab bag of other things, some expansion of Obamacare uh, to elder care, child care. And so forth, and that's going to make it more controversial and make it potentially more difficult. Yeah. All
1: right. So, one thing I just want to get a sense for our listeners in the Metro New York area and some other high tax areas, state and local tax uh that issue. That's is not that, in this bill. Does that
2: hit home for you?
1: Oh uh, yeah. As I start to do my taxes, it just <laughs> I'm, it just goes crazy. Eric, what's yeah, going on no, there? That-
6: that was left out uh, that, was, that was proposed uh <laughs> sorry that was proposed by uh you know was proposed uh by some members of especially the northeast delegations but that did not make it into this bill and uh, you know it's obviously could be a candidate for the second round there's there's a lot of talk of doing major tax legislation in the second round including an increase in capital gains tax for those making more than one million dollars a year to uh, equalize the rates with ordinary income etc so we then there'll be a large tax package there. You might have a, of a shot of getting that SALT deduction again.
2: Eric Wasson, thank you so much for joining us. Eric Wasson, Bloomberg Congressional Reporter, uh, joining us on Congressional Matters plus the SALT tax, which is near
1: and dear, to. Yeah, we need the SALT tax. Got to take care of that. And uh, we need yeah. the Gateway. Lisa. And the Gateway. So, so I, I was since like, you have left the show, certain things never change. Yeah. Oh, I know <laughs> salt that. SALT and the Gateway Project. I was about to say, have you
2: been to the Mall of America yet? How do you <laughs> no, feel about not. that? No, I have not. I, have not. <laughs> I know how you feel about that. Yep. Coming up, we've got more uh, talking about municipal finance to get uh, some of these uh, local areas back up and running.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.
4: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry, and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor QNB.